0: All right, at this time, we're going to invite the kids to come on up front and have a seat. Come on up. Feel free to bring somebody along with you if you'd like. Come on up, find a spot. job. All right. Come on up. All right. Good to see everyone this morning. All right. I have something to show you this morning. You ready? Look at that. I have a nice basket of apples. Who likes apples? Raise your hand. All right. Good. All right. They look pretty good, don't they? A nice batch of apples. Good, you can put your hands on. Thanks. So let's say you have this basket of apples. Let's say you're looking through them, right, looking through the basket of apples, and they all seem to be in, in good shape, don't they? But let's say as you're looking through this basket of apples, you discover one apple that's bad. Let's say this was a rotten apple. What would you do with that rotten apple? Throw in the garbage. Yeah, throw in the woods. You'd throw it out. You'd get rid of it, wouldn't you? Would you want that bad apple in with this all these nice, good apples? No, you'd get rid of it, right? Why would you throw it out? What could this bad, rotten apple do to the other apples? It would make them rotten. It would make them bad, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would make the, them bad. All right? It would harm. This one bad apple would harm and destroy all the other apples in the basket, wouldn't it? right now imagine this basket of apples is the church, all right so the people in the church can look to be in good shape, right they're not perfect, but maybe a little little bruised right but they're 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 in good shape, they're growing in faith, right they're following Jesus the best they can, right but let's say there's one person in the church. Who is just living in sin? Right, they're living in sin. This person really likes their sin. They don't want to change. They they like their sin so much that they're not repenting. They're not turning from their sin to follow Jesus. They're just they're they're happy living in their sin. Right, they they're continuing in their sin. They aren't doing anything to try to fight their sin or to do anything about it. Now we as the church. Should we celebrate that person's sin? No. Should we rejoice over it? No. Should we just ignore it and, and be okay with it and let it continue? No, we shouldn't, should we? No, why shouldn't we do that? Why shouldn't we just ignore their sin? Just like a bad apple, what could happen? They could affect others in the church, right? Right? It's not, first of all, it's not good for that person, right, to be away from God and, and just continuing in their sin. But they could negatively affect others in the church. They could cause others to sin. And they can harm the overall effectiveness of the church, right? There's a, f- a saying that says one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, right? Spoils all the other a- apples in the basket. One bad apple makes all the rest of the apples in that basket kind of unappealing, don't you think? It's the same for the church. One person in the church who's just in in sin and not not trying to fight that sin, not repenting, can spoil the the reputation of the whole church, right? In our passage, our scripture passage for the day, in one Corinthians five chapter uh, verse two, it says this: It says, "Let let him who has done this continual sin be removed from among you." Right. So, in the church, a person is who is in continual Unrepentant sin should be removed from the church, removed from the congregation, removed from the rest of the people, right? And so first, that person should be removed because they're kind of like this rotten apple, right? They have an effect on the other people, like we've talked about. They may even lead others to sin, and they would ruin the reputation of the church, and therefore the reputation of Jesus Christ, and we don't want that to happen, right? So that person is to be removed, but there's another reason that they are to be removed from the church. Because later on, oops, sorry about that. Later in verse 5, we read, uh, we see that the goal of, of removing that person is th- the destruction of their flesh, but for the saving of their soul. So their flesh, all that sinful desire within them, we want to see destroyed, right? So that they can be saved so they can have salvation. So part of the goal in removing that person is that they would repent, that they would turn from their sin and turn to follow Jesus because they've seen their sin, and they would come back and they would turn to Jesus and they would actually come back to the church, but not in all of their sin, but in newness of life, can't it? But if we, And so removing somebody from the church, that can sound kind of harsh, can't it? But if we know that it's for their good and for the good of the church and for God's glory, then we can see that as a good thing. And we can pray for that person who's in their sin that they would turn from their sin and turn back to Jesus. Because Jesus has the power to save, doesn't he? Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has the power to save and he has the power to give new life and help us, not only this person, but everyone in the basket, all the apples to live for Jesus, right? So Pastor Jeremy's going to come and he's going to tell us more. Thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat.
1: Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Thanks, kids. I love seeing them all up here. We get a whole bunch more space when they're all up here, don't we? <laughs> all right, we're going back to 1 Corinthians. I, we preached the first through four chapters and ended about mid-June, and now we're back. I want to remind you of why. Hey, Eliza. Uh, All right, Uh, where was I? All right, so I wanted to preach through this book because it deals with a bunch of good issues that we want to hit. One of the good things of preaching right through a book of the Bible is there's topics that are raised that you normally wouldn't pick to preach on if you were trying to just pick topics. I wouldn't probably pick to preach on incest. And yet here it is in chapter five, so so that's good. And we're going to get into other topics that'll be good, male and female stuff, marriage stuff. Uh, there, there's uh, Lord's supper. We'll, we'll hit on a bunch of topics, but mainly, I, Paul here gives us a great model, a biblical model for pastoral elder ministry and one-to-one ministry in the church that we in our kind of churches don't like, don't want, and often don't practice. Uh, how to deal with each other in the church. Paul sets us a good example. And so that, that's one reason I wanted to preach. That's the main reason I want to preach to this book. I think this is an area of weakness for us, an area we can improve on. And so that's one of the reasons. Pre- so what I want to do is I'm going to read all of chapter 5, but we're just going to hit on the first five verses, God willing. So here, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who, is, who did such a thing. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, or reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Your word makes us wiser than our enemies. Uh, We understand more than teachers in the ages, aged by your word. So please, O God, now teach us your word. Keep us from turning aside from your rules. Make your word sweet to our taste that we may hate every false way. In Christ's name, amen. bit of reminder of this letter's background. As you read in verse 9, as I read in verse 9, Paul had written them a previous letter before this. Uh, dealing with this topic, this issue of sexual morality. And in uh, verse 111 and um, five, one, we read that Paul is receiving reports about the church after that first letter. Uh, we even see that he has received a letter that they had sent in 7 verse 1. And so Paul is responding to things he knows to be true about them that he's heard in reports and letters from them. That's what this letter is for. The main issue that Paul is responding to throughout this letter is, the, is one of divisiveness, if you remember. They're a church that's fighting with each other. Uh, they're maligning each other, dividing into little camps, and there's warfare in the church. Uh, and then, along with this divisiveness, they're undermining and maligning Paul's God-given authority, and they're dealing with issues like sexual morality, which we'll see over the next three or four chapters. And they're arrogant and... And we'll see why they're arrogant here in this section. So uh, we finished the first section of the book uh, in June. Chapters 1 through 4 are the first section. Now we'll begin the second section, which goes on um, at least to chapter 9, where Paul is going to, he'll say, now concerning, now concerning the things that he's heard about them. So chapter 5 is in three parts. Verses 1 to 5, dealing with a specific issue of an individual's sexual morality and the church's tolerance of it. 6 to 8 addresses their arrogance over it. And 9 to 13 then lays out a general principle of how to deal with those inside the church uh, who are in unrepentant sin. So in our text, verses 1 to 5, Paul hears a report this, that word, it is actually reported, doesn't necessarily imply that Paul heard from somebody specifically about it. This terminology here is it's generally known about you. The church or the Christians and others who know the Corinthian church generally know that this is a church that's sexually immoral. This is something that is generally known about them. Right? It's, it's widely reported, says one translation. Isn't that gross? That's what's known about this church. And there's two shockers that Paul's addressing here. The one shocker is that a man is um, committing the sin of incest with his father's wife, his stepmom. It's gross. But that's really not the main thing Paul's addressing. Paul's really shocked that the church is tolerating it and not only tolerating it, but boasting of how tolerant they are about it, right? It's not that the church is just fearful over doing anything about it. They're willfully not doing anything about it because they think that's more godly and more spiritual, that, they're, that they've grown past God's word and they're boasting about their tolerance. That's what Paul is most shocked about. And you are arrogant, verse 2. Right? They're boasting. Look how tolerant we are. Wouldn't that fit in our society? Isn't that, some people say, oh, the Bible's 2,000 years old and doesn't apply. (laughs) It doesn't apply, and they're reading our mail. And so Paul wants to address how they should be handling this man, but even more he wants to address their spiritual arrogance and pride. And so spiritual arrogance and pride here is defined as thinking you know more than what the plain uh, writing of God's Word says. It's going beyond what God's Word says, and then thinking that you're something because you're 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 beyond it. You do that, I do that. This is an issue. Now, the purpose for which Paul is addressing this um, if you flip over, sorry, to 735, towards the end of this section. Paul Paul is summarizing, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint on you, but to promote good order, right? They have divisions, he wants to promote good order, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the goal here. Paul wants their undivided devotion to the Lord. He, He wants them to deal with things in a way that is pleasing to God more than anything else. That's the goal here. And in this individual's case, Paul, as we'll see in verse 5, wants him to experience salvation at the day of Christ's coming. So He's got a goal for this individual who's in gross, disgusting sin. And for the entire church, that might fear God and be devoted to him, heart, soul, and mind. Undivided devotion to the Lord. So within these five verses, I want to land on three uh, truths. Authority in the church, that's lurking behind this text big time. Then we'll deal with the issue of sexual immorality, which is explicit. And then I want to relate what Paul's doing here to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So I'm going to need you to think a little bit with me. Um, but first we'll deal with authority. The supreme authority in the local church is Jesus Christ. Paul is writing with real authority. But in verse 4, he appeals twice to Christ. So the authority in the local church is Jesus Christ. And Jesus' authority is mediated by His Word. Christ's authority in the local church That authority is obedience to his word. For instance, the situation that Paul's addressing here deals with um, incest. A son of a father fornicating with his father's wife. And in Leviticus 18.8, it says that you should not uncover your father's nakedness, that is sleeping with your father's wife. In Deuteronomy 27, 20, it says, Cursed is the man who does this. So Paul is appealing to scriptural law, command, as the authority in the local church, which is the authority of Christ. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and is given to me. Make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And so Paul is exercising real authority that's derived from Christ through his word. When Paul says in verses 3, four, three and 4, which seems to be a little confusing, I'm absent in body, but I'm present in spirit. And it, as if I'm present, I've already pronounced judgment. What he's meaning there is that uh, he's not giving some kind of strange spiritual voodoo here that he's absent physically, but he's there hovering spiritually. What he's saying is, no, no, by God's Word, do what I would do if I were there holding to God's Word. Because God's Word is the authority in the local church, and if I was there, we would hold to God's Word. So do what I would do if I was there. We do this. If you as a parent go away and leave your children at home, let's say with your older, oldest child or a grandparent comes and watch or another trusted individual, your authority in that home is mediated through the person you left in charge. And everybody should do what the parent would do. The parent's still the authority even if they're physically absent. Same thing in the workplace. If the boss is gone, everybody should still act like the boss would act. Because you know how he would do it. You know how he would do it by his words. And so the authority in the local church is mediated by the word of God through men who hold to it. Now, one of the unique things here is Paul is not pastoring this church. And yet he is exercising real authority in it. There is a need, brothers and sisters, sometimes within the local church to get help from other trusted people outside of the church. This isn't necessarily appealing to the goodness of denominations. I've been a part of a denomination. That doesn't always work. But sometimes there's need for help outside of it. But mainly we should see this principle That the authority in the local church is God's word. And God gives the people in the church the authority to act based on his word. Notice Paul's language throughout this chapter. Who should have been dealing with this man in his sin? Paul shouldn't have to be dealing with this. The only reason he has to deal with it is because they're not... Ought you, right? They should have been dealing with it. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. We'll get, we'll get to that in a second. Verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Uh-oh. How many of you said that I don't want to be judgmental? Okay. Paul says in the church, based on God's word, you The local church should make judgments based on God's Word. The authority in the local church to deal with its members is given to the members under the elders and pastors. So elders must model this. Elders must model this. In uh, elder training, we read a book called The Reformed Pastor. Who's the author? Anybody remember? Baxter. Yeah, yeah. And I read it this morning. I read it almost every Sunday morning, and he's talking to elders and pastors, and he says this. Elders and pastors must not so far hate their brothers as to forbear rebuking their sin. Elders and pastors must not so far hate their brothers and sisters in the church to forbear, to refrain from rebuking their sin. So Elders and pastors should model this. There's real authority given to them. And then, having it modeled and taught, maybe you experiencing an elder or pastor rebuking your sin, we should be doing this for everybody. This is what church discipline is. Church discipline isn't dragging somebody up in front, calling out their sin, which sometimes might need to be done, it happens privately, consistently in the life of the church, so that the big removal of somebody from the church churches, shouldn't have to happen very frequently. Because we're dealing with each other. And so, but we in the church have been taught that it's wrong to make judgments. Who am I to judge? You've said. I don't want to be judgmental. That's a lie. You know what you mean there. You know what you mean there? What you mean is I don't want to pay the cost of dealing with somebody else's sin. I want to protect myself. That's what you mean there. You say it's not loving to make judgments and exactly the opposite. It is radically unloving not to care for somebody enough to deal with their own sin. Because that's true in the family, right? What do you think of a parent who is doing nothing about a five-year-old to throw fits all the time? you think they're loving? It's not loving because you know what they're going to be like when they're 25. And so we're often unloving, self-protecting, and hateful in this. And so practice. Here, here's, here's, a, here's a practical thing. In the church, you will deal with circumstances repeatedly. You might deal with others who come to you and start talking about somebody else who's not present. Gossip. You're going to encounter that. A practical thing is prepare beforehand how you're going to handle it. When you're in a gossipy situation, it's often too late to figure out what you're going to do when you're in the situation. But that's something you're going to deal with frequently at workplace, in the church, and other. How are you going to get ready ahead of time? Or One thing that you're going to deal with is you'll deal with young parents of young children who aren't handling the disobedience of their children well. How are you going to help that parent? Prepare ahead of time. The church should have been handling this sin. They should have been exercising authority. They're not. How are you going to do it? So this authority, though, isn't just used for our own purposes. The authority is used, as we see in verse 5... For the eternal well-being of others. This authority can be abused. It has been abused. It's sickening. For somebody to take this authority in themselves and abuse it to get their own agendas accomplished, to hurt people, to control people is sick. But more prevalent and just as destructive is the sin of passivity, of not handling it. Abusive use of this authority is gross, but so is not using this authority. I'll put it this way I believe there's probably more people damaged and hurt by the passivity than the abuse. And nobody sees the passive person as doing anything wrong. We call passive men kind, they're good guys. And so this is what Paul is dealing with here. But we must always do it according to God's word. So that's the authority functioning in this text. But the main thing he's dealing with here is sexual immorality. So we're going to have to deal with this. Now, there's young kids in the church, and we're going to talk about sex. And I want you to know that's a good thing. We're not going to get into details of the sex or anything. uh, But... We are to be raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 5, we read the Ten Commandments. The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And in Deuteronomy 6, Paul tells fathers to teach these things, to talk about these things when they're children, when they lie down, when they rise up, when they walk along the way, write them on the doorpost and and, tattoo them on your forehead. So Paul tells fathers to talk about these things with their children in daily conversation. And one of those things is the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. So there's no age appropriateness thing in the Bible. This this should be regularly dealt with in the pulpit, in the classroom, and in the home. So Paul is dealing with a sin here, and he shames the church for not dealing with it. This word sexual morality as I mentioned at the time of confession it's it's porneia it's the general and all-encompassing term for any and all violations of sexual activity outside of marriage it covers all extramarital sexual activity so sometimes in the church we we have this we draw a line at intercourse right everything is permitted but intercourse and that's not true. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells, says purity is dealing with somebody who's not your spouse like you would deal with your own sibling. So in more layman's terms, if you wouldn't do it with your sister, you shouldn't be doing it with somebody who's not your wife. If you wouldn't do it with your brother, then you shouldn't be doing it with somebody who's not your husband. That's purity in the Bible. So I, I prefer to use the term sexual activity, not sex. And so this term is dealing with all kinds of sexual sins, but the specific offense here is incest, as we've already said. And in chapter, chapter 5, verse 9, we read that this sexual immorality, this issue of porneia in this church isn't new. Paul wrote a previous letter to them addressing it. In chapter 6, 12 to 20, he'll address men and women in the church who are having sex with prostitutes. This is in the church. This is in the church. So you know that sexual immorality is not just an issue outside the church. It's prevalent in the church. If you read the Bible, you'll read a history of God's people committing all manner of heinous, gross sexual sin. It's disgusting. And Paul writes that there's an impact for it. If this man were to continue on in his incestuous, un, unrepentantly, his soul in verse 5 would not be saved in the day of the Lord. He would prove himself to not be a regenerate believer because he's not dealing with sin. Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 9 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He's writing to Christians, about Christians here neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles, will inherit the kingdom of God. That isn't teaching works righteousness. That's teaching the reality that the fruit of one's life proves the truth of one's life. You can know whether or not you're a born-again believer by what is changing in your life. And if you're just continuing on an ongoing sin here, especially sexual sin, and you're not repenting over it, and you're not doing anything about it, right? then it's proving that you are not a believer. So there, there is an eternal price we're talking about here. That's why this is so serious. That's why this is such a big deal. That's why it's such a big deal and such a shocker that the church is not doing anything for this man. Because they would rather not do anything for him and see him in hell than do anything for him. They, They are crazy unloving to this man. They hate him. The elders and pastors in the church will not father him. They're rejecting him by doing nothing about it. So the church's response is to tolerate it. Notice what Paul says here. This is striking in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that not even the pagans tolerate. Be more like the pagans (laughs) in this issue. People outside the church would not allow... A young man to take his father's wife. They'd take him behind the mill and beat the poo out of him. They would shun him. They would shame him. He would go to a sportsman's cafe and everybody would talk about him. Rightfully so. But the church is so arrogant in their tolerance. Man, is this reading our mail today. It's the issue of cheap grace. That's what the issue here is. It's false grace. This church believes God is gracious, gracious, gracious and will never deal with unrepentant sin. It's such a wicked view of grace. And their abuse of grace plunges them into even more wickedness than the pagans would do. How about us? I doubt we would tolerate incest. Maybe some of you in private relations would, but as a church we wouldn't. What we tolerate is divorce and remarriage. That's our sexual immorality tolerance. We, don't, we haven't done anything in, in our kind of churches for 20, 30 years. we we turn a blind eye to it. We turn a blind eye to young people and all kinds of sexual activity before marriage. We let our daughters watch movies in dark basements with young men and think nothing's happening. We know it's happening. We refuse to see what we should see. We allow for all kinds of fornications. We tolerate pornography. We put men in eldership who are knee deep in pornography. That's what we tolerate. You tolerate your sons and daughters watching it. We've, we watch movies with all kinds of sexual morality, and we tolerate it. That's what we do. Right? We tolerate sexual abuse within families. It's rampant in the evangelical church. It's rampant in the homeschooling community. We tolerate it. We say nothing about it. We refuse to deal with it. We Ask our young people to delay marriage. We ask young people all the time, what are you going to do after high school? Where are you going to go to college? What kind of job are you going to get? We never ask them when they're going to get married. We delay marriage, which pretty much makes inevitable sexual immorality. We'll get to it in chapter 7. If you burn with passion, Paul's biblical solution is to get married. And all we do is teach our young people to delay marriage. And we're pretty much guaranteeing all kinds of sexual morality. Because you know how hard it was, right? And you think for young people it's any less difficult now in our age? Are you crazy? Why aren't you encouraging them to get married? Why are you encouraging your daughters to finish college and get a good job before they're married? Don't you know what they're made for? Why are we encouraging our young men to continue on and being irresponsible and unproductive and not take a wife and build a home and take responsibility for it? And Paul says what they ought to be doing is mourning Verse 2, you are and you're arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Right, James reads that we should weep and mourn over our sin, especially sexual morality. But we tolerate it. We're supposed to take up responsibility for it, to protect those we love, to discipline to deal with it, to bring godly shame that they would Have repentance, Second Thessalonians three fifteen. Paul even goes to the fire and says, Those who continue on in sexual immorality without repentance, we ought to not associate with it, not even sit down for a meal with it with them. Now, this is where you think you're smarter than the Bible. That's where you think you're smarter than the Bible. Because you say the one thing that somebody needs in unrepentant sexual morality is for believers to get near with them, to invite them over, to be kind to them. We're talking about people inside the church here. Paul says the way to deal with them after you've called them to repentance, after you've exhorted them is to remove them, have nothing to do with them. You can apply that to your own home. The, The issue is, are we devoted to the Lord or aren't we? Are we devoted to the Lord or are we more devoted to what people think about us? Are we devoted to the Lord or are we more concerned about the price we'll have to pay for dealing with this stuff? Right, Paul's goal here is undivided devotion to the Lord. And the goal, though, is that unrepentant sinners... Would be saved in the day of the Lord, verse five, and this gets right down to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I got—I I know it's the end of the sermon, but I need you to think with me here. This is really this is this is the point. Here's what I mean: We know Christ will return, right? He died, he rose, he ascended. He's. Uh oh. And one, there's a devil in this thing. And one day, he is going to return. And when he returns, it will be for judgment and for salvation. Perseverance deals with believers from this day till that day in the Lord. How are we going to persevere? Perseverance is defined as God preserving His children in faith and growing repentance and obedience through all trials and sin until Christ returns. John 10 says that the father and the son give us eternal life and those to whom they give eternal life will never perish no one can snatch them out of his hands. Philippians 1:6 God who began a good work in you will bring it to the com- will complete it at the day of Christ. The Westminster Confession reads those whom God has accepted in Christ made alive and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall from grace but shall certainly be uh, persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Right? That's what this text is dealing with. How are you going to make it from this day till the day of Christ? And so many times we as believers are convinced that that's just God's work totally apart from anything that we'll do. Right? That God just does that and we have nothing to do. But the truth is, what how God does it is by using the normal, regular, God-given human duties and activities that we do for each other to accomplish it. God uses people to persevere his people. God sovereignly uses normal, regular Joes and Janes doing regular things in the lives of other believers to keep believers until the end. And here's a great example of it. It should have never gotten to this point. The moment anybody saw anything between this young man and his father's wife, right? they saw it happening. You know that this kind of immorality doesn't just happen. They don't just wind up in bed together. This was months of little flirtings, right? And somebody saw something. Somebody was sitting there going, huh, that's a little weird. They're they're a little closer than most stepmoms and sons. Something's funky. And they did nothing. And that's when something needed to happen. Because if somebody would have said something right then and shamed them a little bit, it would have been done. But now we're months down the road, maybe years down the road, And this man's eternal soul is in danger. And so God gives pastors and elders to do the hard and dirty work of getting neck deep in the sewer of your sin to call you back to Christ. God gives the earnest prayers of the saints to keep his children in love. God gives the regular worship, daily Bible reading, and so on to keep you in Christ. God gives your hard work of caring for another to call each other to sin to keep you growing in Christ. The doctrine of your perseverance is vitally connected to how you treat each other in the church. This really matters, brothers and sisters. And you can apply this to parenting, to marriage, to the workplace, to friendship. This is just true through and through. And it's love. That's the thing we got to get through our heads. Hebrews 12 says that fathers who love their children discipline them. Because God the Father loves us and disciplines us. You had it happen to you this week. Something happened to you this week that caused you pain, and God was doing that to discipline you. A few weeks ago, I was, did I tell you this story? I don't know. I was driving my windows down, and a hornet or something hit the side of the window, bounced onto my head, and stung me. And for the few minutes before that, it wasn't about anybody here. I was thinking rather critically about somebody. And it hit me. God was spanking me. And he does that for you, right? He does that for you. It might be a big thing. It might be a little thing but we're supposed to do that for each other. We're supposed to do that. Not not, not spank. We're not doing that. But I I mean, we're supposed to exhort each other. We're supposed to rebuke each other because it's loving. It's hard work, but it's primarily pastor's and elder's job. This is hard work. This is thankless work. This is work that you will get abused for and maligned for. But this is necessary work if we love. And here I'm talking mainly to us as pastors and elders and to each other. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace in this. Thank you for loving us enough to discipline us. God, help us to love each other enough to do this hard work. May we not fear it. But trust you, grant us the faith to do this, to do it well, especially as pastors and elders. God, if anyone is here caught in sexual, ongoing, unrepentant sin, God, I pray that you would bring it to light. I pray that you would leave them no quarter. I pray that their uh, flesh may be destroyed so their soul might be saved in the day of the Lord, that you'd use us to accomplish it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. That was a hard text, so the charge is uh the truth that Paul says in six eleven after giving this list of sin, more than half of which related to sexual morality says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the spirit of God, so the charges for those of you caught in this sin, for those of you neck deep in it and don't see a way out and aren't willing to believe God and take the first step of confession, there was a whole bunch of people in this church that used to be that, is Paul's point. See that? And such were, were some of you. There's, because of the gospel, power to break sin. And so believe it enough to confess. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.